0: Welcome back, and welcome back to Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, Every week we examine the big issues in the Middle East and with a special focus on Palestine. And we also take a look at the wider global situation and what's making the news and what isn't. And this week I'm delighted to be joined by Ramzi Baroud. Ramzi is a Seattle-based US-Palestinian journalist and author. Uh, He's the editor of Palestine Chronicle, and a former managing editor of Middle East Eye, and a deputy managing editor of Al Jazeera Online. He's the author of many books, and in November, his latest, uh, These Chains Will Be Broken, Palestinian Stories of Struggles and Defiance in Israeli Prisons will be published in the UK. Uh, And we're going to be talking about uh, uh, Ramsey's book with him today, amongst many other issues. Uh, And I'm also hoping that... uh, People will get in touch, send in your questions to Ramsey, we'll put them to him uh, and also uh, if you do, if you could just let us know where you're you're based, where you're sending your questions in. Each week we hear from people from all over the world um, and uh, we are delighted to have uh, Ramsey. Um, I'm Mark Seddon and uh, I used to work with Al Al Jazeera many years ago when Al Jazeera was first launched so Ramsey and I have I've met in the past we've just realized uh, and it's great to see him again. Um, I also used to work for the UN and I used to work for the uh, President of the um, UN General Assembly and the Secretary-General. Anyway without further ado, thank you Ramsey, thanks very much for joining us from Seattle. Mid-morning your time, late evening hours. Um, now of course we have to wait for your book. Um, Uh, but we can't really have you uh, here on Palestine Deep Dive without us asking about uh, a little bit about the book and the flavor of what's in it. Um, These chains will be broken. Uh, You say that you let tell a story and I suppose my question to you is um, these are Palestinians held in Israeli prisons. By the way, we very rarely hear about uh, Palestinians being held in Israeli prisons, if at all. And when I was thinking about this and and, and thinking about, you know, what we were going to be talking about today, I I realized, you know, I've had a long interest in this, on the whole issue of Palestine and Palestinian rights, but I've never really heard about the rights of uh, Palestinian um, prisoners in Israeli prisons. So my question really, just to start off, uh says, you know you have prisoners they're telling the story in this book but how are they able to how are we able to reach them without giving anything away but how you know how are we able to reach them how are they able to tell their story
1: uh, absolutely uh, first of all thank you very much uh, mark for uh, hosting me it's uh, lovely to see you again and to chat with you <laughs> just a, a, a tiny little correction the people uh, that the book is actually already available Um, out there and can be ordered from uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, and and of course, from Clarity Press, uh, the publisher um, uh, in in the US and Canada. Uh, Of course, your question is is kind of multifaceted. Uh, uh, Why why don't we uh, hear so much from prisoners? Um, Of course, unless they are on a hunger strike, uh, and by that time, they can barely speak anyway. Why are they mute to us? And I think, uh, and, and here's the multifaceted part why do we hear less and less of Palestinians themselves? Why are they marginalizing their own narrative, even though they should be, particularly technically, and morally the center of the story altogether? And I think the reason behind this um, is that we have been told long, long ago that Palestinians are more or less a liability to their own narrative. Uh, of course, the Zionists have. Uh, and the pro-Israel camp everywhere has dominated that narrative and, and kind of imprinted uh, their ideas and their notions on mainstream media. And this is something that we have been struggling with for a long time, generation after generation. You know, the writings of Edward Said, the late professor Edward Said in particular, kind of really highlighted the subject at an intellectual uh, discourse level more than anybody else. But it is the problem of my generation, and I suspect it's going to be the problem of the next generation as well until we are able to make that kind of shift in mainstream media. But on the other hand, because of that, because we are told that Palestinians are, you know, the Palestinian voice can be a liability, we try to avoid speaking directly to Palestinians and try to find a middleman that is going to make the Palestinian story a little bit more amiable. I'll give you a a quick example. Maher al-Akhras, who is currently on uh, the 80th or 81st day of his hunger strike in an Israeli prison uh, made, we only heard his voice once, barely audible uh, from his hospital bed saying that he will only, he is left with two options, either his immediate freedom or death. Um, the Zionists and the pro-Israel camp has taken that video and rewired it in such a way, and they pushed it out in social media, claiming that this man is actually wishing for martyrdom. Mm. And this is what Palestinians actually want. They just want to die. They are, you know, they hate, they hate. This is, this life.
0: Shocking, this is shocking stuff, Ramzi. I mean, we're going to return to, to Mah's case uh, in particular uh, a little bit later on. Um, just before I do, I've just got a message from Michael Gilligan. He says to all pal- to all panelists and attendees, people watching in, are going to send in their questions. Greetings from Central London, Free Palestine says Michael. My question, um, Ramsey, is about the the prison system itself. I guess before we get into the into greater detail about this, can you tell us something about the number of P- Palestinians currently being held in Israeli prisons, the sort of offences? Uh, that they're being held for, the conditions. I mean, in your book, you're you're going to be telling that Palestinians that in the prisons are going to be speaking for themselves. But, you know, what is their situation? How many prisons? How many prisoners? And what is it like to be a prisoner um, in an Israeli prison?
1: Absolutely. Um, The first number, um, uh, and that comes from Abdamir, which is a prisoners uh, uh, advocacy organization in the West Bank. Uh, you have currently, at this moment, you have about 4,400 Palestinian prisoners, uh, in addition to um, about 350 uh, prisoners who are held according to what they call administrative detention, meaning that these are people who are held without charge, without due process, uh, and and, uh, without actually uh, uh, having a definite date of when uh, they will be released. So they could be imprisoned for three months, six months, or indefinitely, uh, but this number is slightly deceiving because the way that uh, the, Israel, the, the, the prison system works in Israel is that it's it's um, it, it's an endless process. People come in every day, as we speak. People are getting arrested, and some people get released. Uh, so you do, you you have a system in which any Palestinian anywhere in any part of the West Bank uh, and East Jerusalem can be held, according you know, within this draconian. judicial system that Israel used to govern the West Bank. But to give a slightly bigger context, between 1967 and 2011, according to human rights organizations, international and Palestinians, over 800,000 Palestinians have experienced imprisonment or detention in Israel. So this is a collective sort of punishment. This is not targeting certain individuals who are being perceived as a security threat, but rather targets the very fabric of Palestinian society. Anyone and everyone can be arrested either as so-called security prisoners, and these are the people who are being accused of committing some sort of an anti-Israeli Occupation Resistance Act or uh, administrative detainees like Meher al akhras uh, Khaled al-Jarrar, so many like them, who tend to be quite, you know, they are the intellectuals, the, 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 the educationists, the uh, artists, the Facebook activists. So you really don't have any particular security charge against them, but they are troublemakers in the eyes of the Israeli political so these, system. So these aren't, these aren't
0: necessarily, uh, you know, actual offenses. These aren't violent offenses necessarily. You, you could be arrested and held in detention, administrative detention, as you as you say. Um, But, Mike, I suppose that I'd I'd ask, well, look, um, if if Palestinians are being arrested in the occupied territories, what does that actually mean under international law for those who detain them?
1: Right. So international law has, you know, there is a little bit of ambiguity about the term occupation itself. And I recently interviewed Professor Richard Falk, who tried to explain this uh, to us in greater details. Uh, Israel is an occupying power, and there are certain responsibilities an occupying power has towards the occupied people. But the Israeli occupation has become so perpetual that it's really no longer occupation in the as defined per international law, particularly by the Geneva Conventions. The Geneva, the fourth Geneva Convention in particular, says that you can't arrest people just willy-nilly like this. And, and and especially you cannot transform them or transfer them, rather, to, uh, the, Israel, to, to, the, uh, to the territories of the occupying power. Mm-hmm. That's not at all what Israel does. Palestinians are regularly being arrested, tortured, taken to and held indefinitely in Israeli prisons, whether in uh, prisons like uh, Ashkelon, whether prisons like Jalameh, Uh, or or prisons in the Nakab desert, uh, and so forth. So Israel doesn't really abide by international law, not in the least in the way that they treat Palestinian prisoners, but because we are so used to Israel's violations of international law, it's no longer kind of uh, a deal breaker. It is something that Israel does, and we are so used to it. Uh, despite the fact that it is a flagrant violation of international law. So, Ramzi, you could be arrested
0: in the West Bank, let's say, um, and charged with an offence in Israel and sentenced. What right and what what abilities do you have to defend yourself in in effectively a prison, in a justice system
1: that is a system of an occupying power? Uh, Well, based on my interviews with nearly uh, uh, 50 or 60 prisoners, this is it's the same procedure that usually happens. Administrative detentions are not as, as arbitrary as it may seem. There is a reason behind it. So let's say that Ramzi is a troublemaker in the eyes of the Israeli occupation. He is active, he speaks out against Israel and Israeli violations. I go to Ramallah or to an area in which Israel has access to in the West Bank, I am arrested. I am taking to a local uh, prison facilities in the West Bank. Then I have to go through the process of torture. Almost every single Palestinian is tortured. 98% experience some form of torture, whether physical or psychological. And, I, you know, and, and, and this could go on and on and on for months, if not years, until I, they get exactly from me, from me what they want. Um, and and, and I, I, I agree to end this torture to sign a document that says, yes, I have done it. I've done exactly what you are saying that I have done. Just please release me to a different facility than this. Once that is exacted from the prisoner, you go to a military uh, a prison, uh, rather military trial. you don 't go to a civilian trial, no Palestinian, regardless of the situation in the West Bank ever goes to a military. Uh, so no a jury, president. no jury. No jury, always military. And, and as a result, they either renew my administrative detention because they haven't acquired the coded evidence they want or they can transfer me to a different type of, of military court where I am being sentenced to whatever number of years that they find suitable to whatever offense that I have admitted. So many of the people I spoke to um, actually haven't really done anything, and they are held according to that system. In fact, the writer, the, the person who wrote the foreword to the book, uh, Khaledah Jarrah, who is a Palestinian, an elected Palestinian MP, and she was in fact involved in the, Isra- the, the case against Israel at the International Criminal Court, was arrested because of her activities with the ICC, and she was in fact arrested again just weeks after the book was released i mean are are people in your book are they able perhaps
0: perhaps they can 't actually reveal their true identities sometimes, but are they able to talk about and reveal uh, their experiences and explain you know, because you mentioned torture there i mean if this is happening uh, in courts uh, when the jurisdiction of Israel is not recognized by international law and by the international community uh, This all surely must be chronicled and how, if it is being chronicled, other than your book, which we must, by the way, your book, um, These Chains Broken, Palestinian Stories of Struggle and Defiance in Israeli Prisons, uh, I'm told is available now and uh, in Amazon if anybody wants to get it. And you just mentioned the publishers, but, you know, how, how do we get this out there so that the people can
1: actually... Know what's going, what's going on, what's been going on. You know, it's been such an emotional journey uh, writing this book because it is. I have been focusing all my books on, you know, on people's history or or what they call history from below to give a platform to the Palestinian voice. Mm. This time around, I wanted to become as invisible uh, as possible in the way I present the Palestinian story and really give the prisoners the ability not just to articulate their own plight and their own struggle. But, but their views of Palestine, their views of the Palestinian struggle as a whole, because they are what I uh, termed in the introduction to the book, they are Palestine's true organic intellectuals. They are people who are living according to certain set of principles and values. Mm. But, you know, Mark, it's been really quite interesting to see how different they are in the way that they wanted to express that story. Some of them are willing to speak about torture and they are open about it. Others feel, especially the the male prisoners, felt really uncomfortable because for them, it can be quite an emasculated process. Uh, So some of them would say, I will not say it in front of you, I will make recordings and I will send it to you. A particular gentleman who was very, very tough uh, in the way that he approached this, he spoke about how strong he was, how, what he told the judge during the military trial, and so forth, and so on. And he told me, I, I don't want to get emotional because I lost friends there, and I've been through so much. And, and I will send you a recording, and it was a few WhatsApp recordings that I received in the morning because of the time difference, in which uh, uh, Muhammad Dirawi uh, basically <laughs> spent most of the time rather weeping. Because of what he actually had to go through, and he looked over the friends that he has left behind, the, the friends who has who have died in prison under torture. Um, can I ask now,
0: something? So- I mean, in terms of um, the physical torture, uh, and uh, what can be done in terms of long justice, because there have been other occasions in history when um, occupying powers have tortured. Uh, those they are occupying. Can you give us some kind of idea of, in terms of the physical torture, what sort of um,
1: torture uh, uh, methods are used? Right, so the torture is, is uh, uh, laid out and is determined by the nature of the accusation. So if they think, for example, that you were about to commit something, uh, like a direct, say, attack against the military occupation, they would do everything. Think they can? They would use, uh, 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 you know, uh, means to uh, electric, uh, you know, to use electricity, for, for example, against certain part, you know, the sensitive parts of your body. They would punch you. They would hang you from your feet, from your hands, in a way that you are, you feel like you are about to touch the, the, the ground, but you can't. Uh, they would do everything that they can. So they will, will, you know, they will go into uh, this monstrous mode of torture. Now this is this happens in some cases, but it doesn't always happen. Uh, what usually happens is that what they call, you know, what they, the Americans have used it as well, what they call the Palestinian chair. So this is kind of the kind of physical torture that happens alongside psychological torture during the interrogation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sit you on a chair that is uh, uh, is un- has uneven legs. You can never determine a way that you can sit down. You're always either leaning forward or backward. They tie your hands and your legs in an extremely painful way from, from behind. Your, your head is pushed back. The first thing they do after that is that they put a very dirty bag that has remnants of meat and, 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 and expired food in your, on, on your head. Uh, so you are breathing the, 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 something extremely dirty. You don't know what it is. You feel that you are dying, but you're not, you feel like you are suffocating and you can't breathe, uh, but it's, it's still enough for you to be able to communicate. And And you could be in that position for uh, up to 12 hours. In fact, uh, uh, if you don't mind, Mark, there's a, a short segment about the torture of a little girl by the name of Dima, uh, who was 12 years old, and she just describes this scene Uh, uh, that took place uh, during interrogation. Just to give an idea, if you don't mind, just a a very quick uh, two-minute excerpt.
0: Yes. Absolutely. Please do. Please do. Because I understand that about about 150 children are currently held in Israeli prisons. Absolutely. I was going to ask you, actually, about the age group, and you're telling us here that you've got a a signed statement from a
1: 12-year-old girl from a 12-year-old child. Absolutely. She was arrested in 2016. They accused her of trying to stab uh, um, uh, an Israeli Israeli guard in front of an illegal Jewish settlement in the West Bank. It was very clear that that wasn't the case, and we explain why that is not the case in the book, but this this is what she says. They transferred me to Hasharon prison. There were screams and loud noises coming from everywhere. The Israeli officer who interrogated me told me that I would be imprisoned for a long time. It was so shocking to hear that. I never thought I would endure such an experience. I had heard of this happening to other kids, but I had no idea that it would happen to me too. I did not know that the occupation was so criminal and so unfair to this extent. But I told myself, Dima, you have to be strong and face your reality the way it is. Then, seven large officers entered the room and began interrogating me at the same time. I was afraid. I kept repeating ma'miltish ishi. I didn't do anything. But they kept asking, swearing at me and yelling in my face from morning until the evening hours, before they left, they tied me to a chair that did not have, e- did not even have, um, th- that did not even have legs. I tried so hard to find a comfortable position; it was impossible. I stayed that way until after midnight. Now, by that time, they—they they can imagine that you are at a breaking point. Mm. You are exhausted. You are sleep deprived. Of course, you can't sleep under these conditions. You are tired. There's beams of lights in your face and you are you know you are ready to give them whatever they want to hear and 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 so forth and so on so this is really the story pretty much of every palestinian prison
0: absolutely shocking and uh, to, to think this is a 12 year old child um uh, under no circumstances should any child be suffering uh, in in such a way um and especially when essentially, essentially we have a prison system run by a state but there we are. This is terrible. We've got a, a question that's come in. This is from uh, Alexander Bustos in London Greetings, Ramsey. Thank you for all that you do. The names of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails are largely unknown outside of pro Palestinian circles, and unfortunately, uh, even within many as well. Compared to the South African political prisoners such as Nelson Mandela and uh, Oliver Tambo, etc., who, on the lips of every anti apartheid activist fighting for liberation in South Africa, Palestinian prisoners such as Marwan Baghouti, Khalida Jarrah, Ahmed Sadat, largely remain. How can we change that reality? Do we need to shift our focus towards Palestinian prisoners and stop obsessing over the PA and Abu Mazen's diplomatic efforts, which have gone? nowhere?
1: Uh, bravo. That's an excellent question, from Alexander, because indeed, this is the reason why we put this book together in the first place. We, we, we quite often talk about Palestinian resistance, but when it comes to actually uh, talking about resistance in, 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 in a tangible way, as the struggle of prisoners on a daily basis, we, we tend to be a little bit concerned about what this means to the image of the people or the person who is trying to present these stories. An example, this is a a uh, Palestinian-American organization, a Palestinian-American organization that I have, you know, among, you know, uh, we have been doing a lot of advocacy for Maher al-Akhras and other prisoners. And they said they, they can't really do anything for Maher because the organization that Israel is accusing him of being affiliated with, that being the Islamic Jihad, is on the FBI's uh, terrorist list. Therefore, we don't want to take that risk. I mean, imagine it is Israel that is now determining the nature, the scope, and the scope of um, how we advocate for Palestine and the Palestinians. That, That did not happen in South Africa. They were not extremely concerned about how, you know, Nelson Mandela being a communist or not is going to affect the brand of the South African anti-apartheid resistance. When it comes to Palestine, we approach this issue so very cautiously, as if we are so worried about the sensibilities and the sensitivities that are surrounding this issue. So what we try to do in the book is to liberate the Palestinian prisoner from the faction element at all. In fact, and, and this might sound a bit strange to you, that some of these prisoners, I personally did not know of their political affiliations until the book was actually came out. I didn't care because my question to them was this, define your experiences in prison the way you see fit, the way you want the world to understand it, the way that matters to you and to you only. Some of them said, I was arrested because I was accused of being affiliated with Hamas. Others didn't, and I didn't insist on that answer because a Palestinian cannot and should not always be defined based on the faction that he's affiliated with or accused of being affiliated with. And I think the same thing we need to do here is that we need to liberate Palestinians from the confines that we have created for them. Palestinian prisoners do exist in prison beyond faction. As far as Israel is concerned, when they are torturing a Palestinian, they could care less if he is Hamas, Islamic Jihad, communist or not. What really matters to them that this is a person that they are suspecting of doing some anti-occupation activities and therefore has to be held accountable for it and i think we have to be
0: peaceable these are peaceable activities it will seem astonishing to people watching this that people can be put into so-called administrative detention which which translated to my mind is is detention without trial uh, and conviction without a jury and vaguely reminiscent to when i was growing up of what were No, no, no. my father was in the military um, and uh, we lived in Northern Ireland. And there was a huge scandal then about the so-called Diplock courts. And uh, these were named after uh, Lord Diplock. Essentially, there was no jury. And so people could be convicted of uh, offences, terrorist offences or otherwise. And of course, they never really worked uh, because the instruments of oppression, when they happen like this, make people even more determined and more angry and that actually brings me on to this because you mentioned him earlier um and, and one of the one of the key your, your book is very timely uh, the, we've got this focus today on particularly on on the on Palestinian prisoners we hope other media will take it up because maha al ahras is now by all accounts 80 days in counting uh into a hunger strike uh, I, I mean personally i we, we were talking about this earlier today what is his situation today we don't know but very very close we hear to death and can you tell us something about this case he's been accused of being a jihadi he denies it um but whatever is the accusation he hasn't gone to court so there hasn't been a charge so what, what why is uh, what is the what is the what is the case around uh, uh, what what can you tell us more about this particular case
1: right so Maher was arrested four times in the past this is the fifth he was in prison uh, now a total of five times, every single time, according to administrative detention. Um, the same process, torture, intimidation, abuse of all kinds, and, of course, he did not admit to anything. And, of course, Israel <clears throat> could, has, could easily find out if Maher has already committed anything that wrong doing again, by, by Israel's own definition, or not. It's just really about silencing him, it's about um, just sending a message to Palestinians that anyone who speaks out against the occupation will have to pay a price. This time around, um, Maher is very determined. Uh, I will not end this. It's either my death or my immediate freedom, Um, to the point that even the Israeli court said, okay, you know what? We recommend that you should be released in November at the end of the official first administrative detention order. And he said, no, because I know what will happen. Even if I am released, I will get re-arrested again. There has got to be some different condition this time, otherwise I will not stop. Now, I know that we try to glorify and romanticize the hunger strike as a strategy for Palestinians to obtain their freedom, but in some sad way, I also think it's not. And this is really the conclusion I reached talking to many of these hunger strikers after they were released, or their their families as well. So
0: so it's a protest essentially Against uh, administrative detention, is he saying this is a this the whole system is is wrong? It's not just about my own release,
1: but the whole system has got to be has got to go. Is that what is is this what it's about really? That's that's exactly what it is. That every single time someone like Maher, you know, starts his hunger uh, strike, we you know we try to make the point that it is not about that single individual only. It's about the very policy of using. Uh, administrative detention. It is wrong. It's illegal. It's illegal under international law. Everybody says the same There is not single uh, international human rights organizations that would disagree with this. Uh, but because there is not a focused strategy by the Palestinian leadership, by the Palestinian authority and, and frankly there is no strategy outside the Palestinian world as well that, that challenges Israel legally on this issue even if matters hunger struck and hopefully it will have a happy ending. I mean, you know, air quotes happy ending at the end. It will happen again and again and again until it is confronted through you know, a concerted effort by Palestinians and the international community to bring this tragedy, tragedy to an end.
0: How many? And by the way, but Steve, Stephen Watters has been in touch from Sunderland in, uh, in, in northeast England. He said um, this is in, in relation to what we were just talking about very briefly, the, the situation in Northern Ireland in the 70s. And there were prisoners who went on hunger strike, including famously Bobby Sands, who, who, who had been elected a member of parliament, a Sinn Féin, a member of parliament and, and, who, and who died. Uh, he said, uh, wasn't it called internment without trial? In Ireland, and indeed it was, and this is the situation um, in Israel and Palestine right now. Can you give us some idea of how many prisoners, how many Palestinian prisoners, are being held um, with, without in internment without trial, administrative detention, as the Israelis like to call it? I,
1: I think it's it's important, um, as, as we said earlier. Currently, there are 350 or so, but the the, the you know people go, come in and come out, so we are looking at thousands of prisoners who are held according to the system uh, uh, over the years. But I think it's kind of important that we here not make so much of a distinction between administrative detention and uh, and, and security detention, the so-called security prisoners. Because as we said, if you don't have a trial by jury, and the decision is made by a military judge, and torture is now legal in Israel, Therefore, even if there is, you know, people who are being accused of carrying out all sorts of attacks against the Israeli occupation, soldiers and settlers, can you really, you know, say with with absolute certainty that these people have in fact committed, uh, you know, uh, such acts or not? Uh, Because I know of people who would admit to some wrongdoing only for the torture to stop. Therefore, I think it's important that we don't just automatically assume that if it's a security prisoner, well, he must have done something. In many cases, they actually haven't. Um, But in the case of administrative detainees, of course, that's a whole different story because these are people that Israel itself knows that they actually haven't done anything. Uh, uh, For example, you have the the Gaza um, uh, director of uh, world uh, uh, Vision, who is currently in Israel, has been tried 151 times. He has been placed before a military judge 151 times. But because he would not admit to any wrongdoing, uh, the the case carries on and on and on. It is the longest running military case in the history of the Israeli occupation since 1967. Ordinary. I mean, Ramsey, there's a, there's another
0: issue, of course. Um, it's, a, it's a global issue, uh, and it's the one that is affecting people uh, wherever they come from. But, of course, you know, if uh, if you're poorer and live in more crowded conditions and all sorts, we know that the pandemic can affect you more seriously. Um, and we know that the, in Israel there's been uh, a resurgence of uh, COVID-19, a lot of uh, concern amongst people in Israel and Palestine about how the Israeli government is coping or doing any, doing a, a, a decent job. What about the prisons? Um, I don't know, just, just, uh, if you're a prisoner per se in an Israeli prison, whether you're Israeli or Palestinian, how, how safe would you be from
1: COVID-19? Um, of course, and we have to put this even within the context of the fact that hundreds of the prisoners, Palestinian prisoners are struggling with terminal illness, illnesses. Uh, cancers and such, There are uh, and, and hundreds more are struggling with hypertension and other sorts of health complications and problems. Um, and we already know that there is uh, m- many cases of medical negligence in Israel. Uh, just a month ago, a Palestinian prisoner died as a result of medical negligence. Uh, my own relative, Faris Baroud, last year died as a result of medical negligence uh, in, in, in the Nakab prison. Uh, and many of the hunger strikes, the collective hunger strikes that are launched by the so-called security prisoners have been fighting for this, better health care, uh, better, you know, uh, cleaner facilities. So they are already struggling with these issues before the COVID-19 uh, 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 pandemic started. So now the, the issue is multiplied because we, we, we know that Israel hasn't done any, any or hasn't really invested any serious efforts to address these issues and this concern. Okay, so now we are minute, hearing about Palestinian prisoners who are themselves uh, have contracted COVID-19 as of late.
0: Ramsey, I'm just wondering whether you know, the, the Red Crescent or other uh, international organizations can actually visit uh, uh, Palestinian prisoners uh, in these conditions, um, you know, and, and, and if not, why not?
1: Uh, Israel does not facilitate family visitations. They can only agree. Uh, uh, not just family visitations, but visitations by lawyers and such. They can only agree to these visitations if it's organized by the Red Cross. And, and even then, you know, during the detention, the initial detention and torture period, the Red Cross is not allowed to visit prisoners and so forth. Now, the Red Cross, as of 2016, have had—they said that they have had financial issues and budget cuts. So that instead of facilitating a, a visit uh, once every month, uh, twice every month, now they can only do it uh, uh, once. Uh, and this is now even getting more difficult to facilitate because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. So most of these prisoners are living in total and utter isolation. Even the hunger strikers themselves, Maher al himself hasn't been allowed to see his own family and his lawyer uh, because they are Trying to put even more psychological pressure on him. So, this issue of visitations, whether visitations by Red Cross, by lawyers, by family, has been one of the issues that Israel has used to manipulate and to put more pressure on the prisoners and to ensure that they do not feel any kind of solidarity and support and help coming from the outside world.
0: So, um, Ziad Sudan asks uh, I'm quite amazed by. Um, The gendered performance of Palestinian prisoners, um, testimonies of their torture, is this a general quality of prisoner testimony or does Dr Baroud consider it particular to the Palestinian question?
1: Uh, that's a really good question. I think uh, torture has been one of the uh, kind of the key elements that Israel uses in its treatment of prisoners Uh, and they have justified that in in so many different ways have actually sold that justification, sadly, to the Americans during the Iraq war. And the Americans have adopted many of the Israeli torture tactics. And now it's also a stable in the American way of treating their prisoners of war and such. So, yes, uh, uh, torture is something that Israel uh, has used for, for many years, and they will continue to use. And this there is, of course, again, as we said, uh, immense pressure coming from the international community and the outside world to stop it. The fact is, uh, uh, and, and this is something that the Israelis also uh, claim that the, the, the high court itself at one point a few years ago said torture is illegal even under Israeli, Israeli law. Uh, a few years later, I think 2018 if I remember correctly, they revised that opinion and they said, well, some forms of torture can be used under certain situations and ultimately that's was interpreted by the Israeli torturers, by the Israeli uh, uh, Prison Service Administration that we can go back to business as usual and they already have swing. Ramsey, I mean, I'm thinking we, we, we sort of
0: broaden it out um, from the prisons to uh, what has been termed by many people as the biggest open air prison in the world now, which is actually Gaza. Uh, and the reports we had earlier this week of people Foraging in bins, um, this is a desperate situation. I don't know. I mean, obviously you're in Seattle, but you're in close contact with, uh, with friends and family um, in the occupied territories. Can you give us some idea of what it's like um, for an ordinary Palestinian in Gaza today?
1: Uh, well, I was born and raised in a refugee camp in Gaza, uh, in the Musairat refugee camp. I left when I was in my early 20s. So I, I kind of lived the full experience. I was there for the entire First Intifada. You know, I, when I approach uh, my, my, my you know, books and my writing of, of books and, and, and such about people's history, I have been utilizing what they call positionality, meaning that the, the writer himself, the academic, the researcher, can relate to the issue through his own position within that story itself. Um, And so I wrote all of my books knowing that I am somehow a character in these books because I lived most of the experiences that I have highlighted. When it came to the issue of prisoners, I had to question that method. Am I in a position that would allow me to actually understand what it's like to be in prison if I haven't spent, I have been detained by the Israelis, but I haven't spent long enough time in prison that I can actually speak about it with moral authority. But then it dawned on me that I was born and raised in Gaza. Gaza is a prison. Gaza, whether we like it or not, and whether this uh, makes some people feel uncomfortable, is a concentration camp. And I've lived that full experience, the Israeli occupation, the attacks, the deaths, the, 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 the tortures, the murders, the humiliation, the poverty, the lack of everything. Most importantly, the lack of freedom knowing that you can't leave, you can't come back. Um, and, and, and you are just in that state of waiting, this endless waiting, generation after generation, hoping against hope that someone will come to your rescue. I mean, that essentially is a, the experience of the prisoner. And this is essentially what every Gazan currently, all two millions of them, is living. So in, some, in so many different ways, all Gazans are prisoners, and all Palestinians in the West Bank, living under different rules, different systems, different zones, are also experiencing that prison that, that prison life as well.
0: I suppose I'd like to ask you a slightly broader question because you know you've got you've had this background also in the media, um, and you know how difficult it is uh, to get the mainstream media to focus on uh, issues around Palestine i mean when when i was growing up there was almost a collective the collective wisdom became and you had to be a real outlier to actually be supportive of apartheid south africa but there was global sympathy and support for the struggle of the south african people for freedom um and it was reported in a, in a, in a much uh, it was a much more detailed sympathetic uh, uh, examination and reportage of what was going on that doesn't seem to be the case with Palestine anymore, and it's actually possibly got even more difficult. Um, We could talk about media ownership, media concentration, but actually there's another issue, uh, and that is, especially in countries like Britain and the United States, there does appear to have been a concerted attempt to uh, push those arguing for Palestine into a corner and say, you know, people are bored of it, they've heard it all, they don't need to hear any more, and also you have to be careful because a lot of these people are anti-Semitic and that's very much the case in this country, I would argue. So how do, you, how do we break through that? I mean, these, what you're talking about in the situation in Gaza, people are interested in They do want to know about it, but we're finding it very difficult to
1: hear about it. So how can we? You know, I, 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 I toured the UK uh, several times with my uh, books and, and, and uh, writings in the past, Mark. And my last visit was viewing uh, the upheaval within the Labour Party where uh, Jeremy Corbyn and others within the party were accused of being anti-Semitic, and we know that the vast majority of these cases were labeled such because of his strong stance in support of Palestinian freedom. And, and what I was advocating at the time, and it just happened that I also met members of the Labour Party, is, is that maybe, maybe just for once, instead of allowing yourself to be constantly on the defensive, trying to prove that you are not anti-Semitic and, you know, this constant, you know, like, for example, they would rather um, um, uh, cite uh, within the Palestinian Solidarity Movement, within the pro-Palestine media, they would cite, uh, and, and, you know, uh, Israeli writers, uh, uh, pro-Palestine Jewish writers to prove, mm-hmm. see, they are Jewish, they are Israelis, this proves that they, we are not um, anti-Semitic, and, and as a result, the Palestinian writer and historian and artist and the storyteller is often marginalized because, again, as I said earlier, we become like some kind of a liability. And my argument was, why can't we just ignore this? Because you know you can't win this kind of war. Mm. You can't win this war that is so cemented on the part of the, the, the pro-Israeli uh, elements in the media. And it's really quite powerful and quite strong. And it's been there long before the likes of me even came to make a case for Palestine. So, so the point is, why don't we allow Palestinians to speak for themselves? Why can't we actually ask the Palestinians, how do you feel about this? The prisoner, the mother, the father, the nurse, the teacher, the fighter, the, 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 the justice activist, the everyday Palestinian. Um, what, what would the Israeli response to this be? So what I have been trying to do, and I know others have done the same mm-hmm. thing, is let's change the subject altogether. Let's give Palestinians the, the centrality of their narrative that they have always coveted and deserved throughout the years and let them speak for themselves. And Mark, I have tried this in so many different platforms, especially ones in which have a very strong pro-Israel influence and you, you know, universities, especially in the US and Canada, where if you present it from that point of view, it's like you completely defuse them. They mm. don't have anything to say. Right, so I think this is, in my opinion, a very successful and, and, and strategy, and I think this is going to be something that should, uh, in my, in, in my view, uh, not supplement but rather supplant the in the elitist way in which Palestine has been conveyed to the rest of the world. Let the Palestinians speak. And this is the
0: centrality to your book centrality to what you've been doing as you were just telling us and actually for anybody in the media uh, they all know we all know that actually all news stories all real stories all documentary stories they have to be they have to be about an individual story otherwise it's very difficult to get uh, the interests of viewers out there so it's so 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 obvious uh, in a way um but of course you know for many palestinians who are in prison we can't hear their voices we can't see them um, For many Palestinians in Gaza, it's very difficult for journalists to get in to actually speak to them. So we have to empower people, I guess, through the technology, through perhaps through Palestine Deep Dive and many other um, organizations and media organizations who are out there to give people a platform. So that's what we're going to be doing um, but look, I'm going to just move on, if if I may, because we 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 haven't got a huge amount of time. We're conscious of the fact that we don't, we can't keep you for too long. But I just want to, um, you're in Seattle, you're in the United States, you're an American Palestinian, um, and you you know better than most, you know how difficult it is to get the U.S. media to talk about Palestine sympathetically or the Palestinian cause but you also know how difficult it is to get the US media to talk about anything that's outside America. And I lived and worked there. We had a terrible battle to get, uh, even though there was a great thirst for it. Um, do you sometimes get very, very frustrated uh, in America with the, with the way that the, 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 media channels sort of don't cover international issues at all, whether it be issues in Middle East and Palestine, Israel, or, or anywhere else for that matter, and what can be done?
1: Right, so yes, of course. I mean, American media is, is so, um, you know, Trump is often accused of being an isolationist. I, well, I think American media is the original isolationist uh, platform. Uh, even long before Trump uh, came to power, you know, the issue has always been about something else entirely. And imagine Palestine within that something else. I mean, it had a very, very marginal presence. Uh, we almost did not, uh, or we still really do not exist, Palestinian intellectuals, Palestinian voices. The New York Times doesn't acknowledge our existence, barely, really. And this is something that that goes back since the New York Times content has been uh, recorded uh, many, many years ago. Palestinian voices do not exist. And, And just to give you a little example about this, I was asked by the New York Times, uh, about a year ago to write an article about the great march of return in Gaza. And I was really happy about this because I felt like about time that someone is going to give uh, you know, the chance for these ordinary Palestinians in Gaza to present their views in the world and why they are doing what they are doing. But the editor insisted that it has to be about the hamas Fatih clash and how they are angry against Hamas and Fatih. And I wanted to talk about. The right of return, I wanted to talk about Israeli violations of human rights. I want to say that these tens of thousands of Palestinians are people who have political conscience and able to make independent political decisions aside from factions. Our life doesn't revolve around Hamas and Fatah, And they insisted otherwise. Two months of constant conversations and they said, Ramzi, we are gonna move on.
0: And this is really- This is the New York Times. I mean, this is, I mean, you know, people watching this, I think, this is extraordinary. This is a, the New York Times is is quite rightly held up as a fantastic example of journalism and best liberal voice in America and all the rest of it. And yet, from what you're saying, you know, the shutters come down. You know, the editors are saying, well, if you write about it, you have to do it this way. It does seem pretty extraordinary. But of course, that brings me on really to the Al Jazeera experience, if I may, because a lot of people are interested in Al Jazeera. A lot of people watch it. Um, and. Um, you know you you and i were involved in with al jazeera at the very beginning al jazeera english in america um back in 2005. um there was of course subsequently a launch of a channel that was actually specifically called al jazeera america it didn't last for long a lot of money was spent on it um do you think that uh, uh that whole idea of uh, of uh, al jazeera in america was a good one do you think it's had any uh, effect Has it been a positive one, or has it just been very, very marginal?
1: What do you think? Well, I think uh, Al Jazeera America, um, really, it, it, uh, as far as Americans, ordinary Americans are concerned, and even, frankly, the intelligentsia, um, I don't think it really left a mark that um, I think most people would have forgotten about it by now. Sadly, massive amounts of money were pumped into that channel. Uh, but Al Jazeera in general, I, mean, I think there was the golden age of Al Jazeera you know, the one that followed the American invasion of Iraq and, you know, Taysir al-Luni going to Afghanistan, to villages that no one heard of their existence, talking about the plights and the struggles of ordinary people who were being bombed on a daily basis. And we know how angry the U.S. was at Al Jazeera during that time uh, because of this kind of extraordinary reporting and the courage of their their correspondents and their reporters. But I think as of late, the the, the focus of Al-Jazeera has shifted, Uh, and it became really largely kind of geopolitical and taking sides, and um, the nature of the conversation in Al-Jazeera has has changed. So that ordinary Arab, that oppressed Arab living in Yemen or living in Gaza or living in in, in Morocco is no no longer the top priority of Al-Jazeera, and it did... uh, it, as, a, as a result, which is really quite sad. I mean, we can. This a long conversation, and we can talk mm-hmm. uh, about it uh, in a different occasion. But it's it's kind of sad to see how Al Jazeera, that at one point, uh, for someone like me, for an as an Arab intellectual and Arab journalist, kind of um, uh, represented the hope that that finally we don't have to be chasing after mainstream media to publish Ramzi's or Ghada's or Muhammad's article about Palestine and always feeling frustrated that nobody is even acknowledging our existence. Now Al Jazeera is there to fill that gap. Well, as of late, that has changed and Al Jazeera is really not filling that gap anymore and especially with Palestine. Palestine is now a minor issue in the coverage of Al Jazeera compared to when it first started. And just one final comment I want to say, Al Jazeera became popular among so many people around the world, especially the English Al Jazeera, because they thought this is a, a very professional, slick looking, you know, an appealing platform that actually makes Palestine a priority. Now that that has been lost. Um, a lot of people kind of turned away and and, and walked, you know, moved on looking for other alternatives.
0: It's a, it's a real shame and um... And let's hope maybe people from Al Jazeera watching this will take some of those comments on board. But of course, you know, when talking about the US media and it's it's just disinterest with a few honorable exceptions of covering the rest of the world. We do know that um, policy towards uh, Israel in particular counts uh, for a great deal of importance politically within the parties because there are a lot of votes in it. Um, And this election is no exception, really. Uh, it takes place the U.S. presidential election we're talking about. And if I'm quickly going to ask you about uh, um, that, that Ramsey, you're there. I mean, do you think uh, that um, Trump's deal of the century—it's kind of—it's become essentially at the moment the UAE and Bahrain establishing diplomatic ties with Israel. Do you think that um, that's going to have? An effect on getting more people to vote for for donald trump's Republican party and donald trump or or, or not do you think it's playing in this
1: election at all um, I, I don't think it is going to have an effect on the vote itself uh, because we know uh, for a fact that majority of American Jews are voting for the Democratic party, and I don't see that shifting anytime soon because American Jews don't just have Israel as their top priority they have their own mm-hmm national uh, agendas and struggles as well. Um, But I think it was ultimately about the support that Trump has gained from the likes of uh, uh, Sheldon Edelson, for example, the powerful pro-Israel lobby groups in this country. Uh, And and he indeed received all the kind of financial and political support that he needed from them. Um, I think just one really Thing that I find striking about the difference between Biden and Trump and both camps regarding this is that, is that Trump is not an ideologue in the sense that he's an opportunistic man. I mean, I think, you know, and we've been following this issue on a daily basis, so we kind of remember when the term, the, 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 uh, the deal of the century was, was uh, devised. I think it was actually devised before, uh, before the actual deal was articulated. Mm. Trump came up with this term that this is going to be something that is going to be a game changer. And Kushner worked very slowly, Derek Kushner, on on actually adding meaning and substance to that term. The difference between him and Biden is that Biden is uh, pro-Israel, ideologically pro-Zionism for many, many years. And I've traced in my articles his statements on Israel since the early 1980s, where he made the statement, that you don't have to be a Jewish to be a Zionist. I am not Jewish, but I am a Zionist. Compare that to Trump, who kind of really kind of stumbled on Israel uh, just in the last four years. Just one last thing I'd like to say, remember his uh, speech before APAC, that really raised the ire of the of the lobby, when he said we should be neutral about this issue. I think his he, his love affair with Israel was only discovered later on when he realized it's, Politically convenient, and it's important financially and politically for him, but not prior to that. So, for the for the
0: Palestinians, for Palestine, does it not really make a great deal of difference whether it's Trump or
1: Biden? Unfortunately, not, uh, Mark, not at all. And I I I I just feel sorry that we are wasting so much time and energy and resources kind of uh, making that argument that who is better and who's worse. It reminds me of the way we dealt with Israeli elections before. The labor versus the Likud. Who's better? Who's better for Palestinians? And it's always the same. History has proved that it's always the same. Why are we expecting that Biden is gonna be fairer, especially that he said, and and, uh, 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 Harris has said herself, that none of the choices and the decisions made by the Trump administration regarding Israel, including the removal of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, none of them will be reversed under Biden. One last thing, it was the Barack Obama administration that has provided Israel with the largest aid package in its history. And that's when Biden was very excited and enthusiastic about the news. Why would Biden be any different? Why should we expect that? There is zero evidence that this is going to be the case. If it was Bernie Sanders, you know that would have been a whole different argument. But a Biden administration is going to be exactly, if not even slightly, worse in some in some issues regarding Israel and the Israeli occupation. So, in 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 terms of um,
0: the the struggle for Palestinian freedom, uh, for the Palestinian state, for the rights of Palestinian prisoners. Uh, for just and equitable uh, peace permanent peace in israel Palestine, uh, what I guess you would be saying is let 's stop talking about who 's going to be American president, you know who 's running the Palestinian authority who 's the israeli prime minister we 've got to really focus on an activism and people and their stories and getting it out there and uh, and making sure that the somehow making sure that the palestinian cause becomes the cause of many 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 more people uh i mean you just we i sadly have to draw things to um a close actually i'm just i'm just good i've got one question here i'm going to put to you um before we do uh, this is from stephen watters uh, you know, you, you, may be, you may know more about this than I do. but He says, Israel accused Halabi of diverting funds to Hamas. His charity, World Vision, said the alleged amount was more than World Vision allocated for Gaza. But the real reason for imprisonment is to disrupt aid to Gaza, uh, says Stephen. Um, many British charities have been disrupted, he says. Medical aid for Palestinians. Interpal, Interpal said that reason was so that Israel controls the food going into Gaza. Uh, I mean, well, we look, we also know that, um, you know, recently the, the Israeli authorities have been uh, be making it very difficult for Palestinian uh, banks to transfer money to Palestinian prisoners as well. So this is, I, actually, I don't want to leave you on this sort of final quite technical question, but do, do you want to quickly answer Stephen's question? And then we can move on to, to, to the kind of wrap up, if you like.
1: Stephen is correct. I mean, this is the accusation that Israel has made. And, uh, but we know that Israel's ultimate aim in Gaza is economic strangulation. And they have done this very successfully. And as uh, uh, Gessen, who uh, was the um, uh, top advisor of Ariel Sharon at one point, he said, uh, uh, we don't want to kill Palestinians. We just want to put them on a diet. To the point that they were actually uh, measuring exactly how many calories A Palestinian in Gaza would need, in order for him to be malnourished but not to die, we know that it's already in Israeli media. Go to Haaretz and you will find this. Regarding the case of Mohammed Al-Halabi, you know, let's forget about what Mohammed's lawyer is saying or what his father Khalil, who is constantly on Facebook trying to advocate for his son, forget about what they are saying. Look at what World Vision itself is saying. Look at the, the independent investigation conducted. By organizations affiliated with the Australian government, which is the biggest funder of World Vision, every single dollar has been counted for. Why would the Australian government and World Vision, which is a global organization that has no political affiliation, why would they take the side of Hamas? Why would they try to defend Hamas? It's absolutely unreasonable to think about it. But, of course, this is what Israel says and does and, sadly, oftentimes gets away with it
0: well unfortunately Ramsey, we have to bring uh, today's program to um, a close very shortly but i just wanted to 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 finish by by thanking you and asking you if there's uh, any reasons for optimism both for palestinian prisoners and for and um, for palestine the rights of palestine itself I mean, can you are there are there straws in the wind that give you a feeling that um people have more grounds for optimism in over the oh, next 5 years absolutely
1: Uh, optimism exists in in the fact that Palestinian resistance carries on. I mean, we look at Maher al-Akhras and we feel sorry for him, but the fact that there's this god skeletal looking man is able to defy the Israeli court and the Israeli military system for 80 days, holding strong, you know, demanding his immediate freedom. And if if this is not absolute strength and resilience that is unprecedented, really, and and, and it's something that we should all celebrate as human beings to see such strong, resilient people carrying on with their smooth, with their steadfastness day after day. But the other and final point is just the international solidarity with Palestine. Last year, you know, before the COVID thing started, I visited over 16 countries, from Africa to Australia, New Zealand, throughout Europe, the US and so forth. And wherever I go, there's this massive solidarity that's building up for Palestinians in so many different walks of lives and societies and communities. So the nature of the conversation is changing, and Israel is being more and more exposed. We just need to be relentless, to keep at it, not to allow helplessness or hopelessness or despair to ever creep into our hearts and minds. And we should continue demanding a free Palestine and freedom for the Palestinian people until that is achieved. And we know that that history is on the side of Palestine and the Palestinian, and justice is on their side, and eventually they will prevail.
0: Well, thank you very, very much indeed, Ramsby. It's a great pleasure to have you and a fantastic talking with you. And of course, I did ask you before we started to put your book up there so we could all see it, just to remind everybody, Um, These Chains Will Be Broken, Palestinian Stories of Struggles and Defiance in Israeli Prisons. You can order it, please do, at Amazon. Um, And uh, we wish you all the best with that. And uh, we hope that you'll join us again Ramsey, thank you very much to you. And thank you to Omar, to Alex, to everybody else uh, behind the scenes who have made this all possible today, Palestine Deep Dive. And until next time, until actually uh, next Thursday, 4pm UK time,
1: um, thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you.